Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would bless your word to our hearts and to our lives. Help us to not be like the man who looks at himself in a mirror and immediately going away uh, forgets what he looks like, but help us, therefore, to be not only hearers, but doers of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our series on Ecclesiastes. Normally, I do not announce the points of my sermon, and I flip the points around so many times during the week uh, that after we go to print, um, that uh, it would be impossible to include an outline in the bulletin. In fact, this week, uh, if we had not already gone to print, I would have changed the title of this sermon. I've uh, changed it around so many times. Uh, besides, I had a homiletics professor who drilled into us that we were not to announce our points. Um, so many years later, I can't remember his reasoning for not announcing our points, but his influence has become for me a habit. Uh, but I thought I'd announce my points this morning, not for any reason except that I'm kind of proud of my outline. <laughs> I've alliterated all three points with these. With these, I tell you. I'm impressed. Now, of course, I hear Solomon yelling in my ear, Vanity of vanity, that is so vain. Solomon notwithstanding, here are the three points of my sermon. First, we're going to examine the vanity of the pursuit of wisdom in verses 12 through 15. Secondly, we are going to consider the vanity of the pursuit of morality in verses 16 and 17. And then we'll conclude with the vexation of the pursuit of knowledge in verse 18. So, before we jump into the outline, I have a side issue that I think that is, it is important to touch upon right at the beginning. I've known many uh, people who became Christians uh, young in life. Maybe they were teens or in college or young marrieds. But as they lived their busy lives, juggling career, uh, raising a family, uh, facing the pressures of living, they lost their focus. And they started straying from their devotion to Christ. And sometimes they even slid away from the church uh, and uh, did not attend for decades and decades. But every day, because Christ is precious to them, even though they're not living like Christ is precious, they feel guilty for their backsliding. And they live with this great fear that they have been so unfaithful to God that God simply will not receive them back to Himself. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes after straying further than I imagine any of us could. He had such an advanced beginning. God gave him all this wisdom that his fall and his backsliding was great. If you want to read about the greatness of Solomon's beginning and then his turning away, really his turning away, uh, you can find it uh, in 1 Kings chapter 11. It is a long chapter. 
recording Solomon's unfaithfulness to God. He strayed for decades, but near the end of his life, he returned to God, and God received him back. The book of Ecclesiastes, in fact, is Solomon's pleading with others who maybe have, sl- have slidden away from God and need to return. If Solomon's life story is also yours, I urge you to take courage from Solomon's repentance and return to God with the full assurance that he will welcome you back as well. Your regrets from being away from God so long will remain in your memory, but your sins God will remember no more. On to the outline. So the first point, the vanity of the pursuit of wisdom. Solomon spoke in generalities in verses uh, 3 through 11 as he introduced the, the book of Ecclesiastes. But now he's, he's drilling down, he's focusing, he wants to be more persuasive. So he uses himself to help us understand uh, what it to understand the vanity of trying to live without God. We know he's near the end of his reign as king because he uses the, the perfect tense in verse 12. So in verse 12 he says, I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. The, the perfect tense when it, where it says, I have been king, tells us that his reign is basically complete but it has a present continuance at the time he was writing. My mother, who is an educator, who taught me in seventh grade, would be so proud that I could explain the perfect tense <laughs> in a public setting. But uh, because I could not do it <laughs> when I was younger. Uh, but the present tense, basically complete, has a present continuance at the time as was writing. So in verse 13, Solomon tells us that he's been king and also, after, if we would have read 1 Kings 11, we would see that he has returned from a life of self-pursuit. And now, as uh, in his repentance, he applied his heart to seek and to search out wisdom that is done under heaven, that is done um, without um, without the Lord. In other words, he's asking the ultimate questions. What is the meaning of life? What is truth? What is really real? He's searching these things out. He wants to understand, understand the whole scope of life, the whole scope of truth, the whole scope of wisdom. But it's instructive here that in order to help us understand um, the points that he's making and how empty life is without God, he begins his search for wisdom without mentioning the fear of the Lord. Now what's odd about Solomon, of all people, neglecting to fear the Lord in the beginning for his search for wisdom? Solomon wrote Proverbs. 
chapter 9, verse 10. And he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So what Solomon is doing is he is seeking the very best wisdom that human beings can produce apart from God. He wants us to see how, how far purely human wisdom can take us apart from God. Of course, we know His answer. It gets us nowhere. In fact, verse 14, He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so it's little wonder then that He says in verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Everybody needs wisdom in order to live. To live. Unbelievers need wisdom in order to function in the world. Atheists need wisdom in order to function in the world. All cultures, regardless of whatever religion or worldview predominates, all need wisdom because we all need to function in the world. But wisdom without God, uh, wisdom without God being the foundation, is ultimately a house built on sand. It is perverted at its roots, and it ultimately ends in chaos. When Solomon says it is an un- unhappy business, that's actually a poor translation. Verse thirteen, you see that. Uh, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The word for the Hebrew word for unhappy is ra, which means evil, uh, bad. And so he's not simply saying that um, that seeking out wisdom is is gloomy. No, he's saying it's it's evil. Why would he say that? When people are seeking out wisdom for their own self-centered purposes apart from God, what they're doing is they're stealing from God. Um, It's the sin of Adam and Eve all over again. They're seeking to be their own source of authority. They are stealing God's truth in order for them to pursue their own selfish ends apart from God. And so, what Solomon's saying here is this an evil business. It's also evil because it causes chaos. You know, without God, it is impossible to have any objective standard of truth. Without God, it is impossible to have any sense of true certainty. Without God, it's impossible to have any real justice. Without God, it is impossible to have any clear sense of right and wrong. For example, in the realm of ethics, and I'll probably pay for this one, just for mentioning this illustration, would it be wrong for me to be unfaithful to my wife? Of course it would. Why would it be wrong? 
Because I made very solemn promises to my wife. I made promises to love her. I made promises to cherish her. To count her to be more important than myself. To stick with her for better or for worse. In plenty and in want. In joy and in sorrow. In sickness and in health. As long as we both shall live. But without God, those vows have no foundation. Without God, where is the obligation to look outside our own interest for the good of another? Or consider the whole history of philosophy. At least 500 years before Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, before they were born, here is Solomon anticipating the whole history of Western philosophy, or Eastern philosophy for that matter, beginning with Plato, but I'm just going over Western philosophy, uh, beginning with Plato and Aristotle, the philosophers have tried to find the basis of knowledge using either pure rationality, 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's true truth, or pure sensation, what we can experience with our senses, what we can see, what we can hear, uh, what we can feel. Those things are real. And so um, there, have been both, there have been great thinkers on both sides of this argument. For the rationalist, great thinkers. Plato, Descartes, among uh, the, the best and the brightest. But then on the other side, you have the great British empiricist, Berkeley, uh, Locke, Hume, and then you've had many who've tried to mesh the two things together, rationality and empiricism. Empiricism is another way of saying what we experience with our senses. But none of these attempts at acquiring knowledge have been practical for living one's life because of the gaping holes and the glaring inconsistencies in the positions that they have put forward. And that's why the, the history of philosophy has moved forward, because each philosopher, as great as they are, another comes along and uh, shows out the glaring, or uh, points out the glaring inconsistencies. And so then he brings forth his for another philosopher to come along and knock down his position. You know, finally, Immanuel Kant came along in the 1700s, and he said that knowledge comes from the individual. Each person, he basically he said, each person determines what is true for them. And Western culture really hasn't moved very far uh, away from Immanuel Kant since the late 1700s. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that is shaped to a large extent by Immanuel Kant. Our universities now or have taken his teachings to their logical conclusions and are teaching students that what makes them feel good is what is true and real. If someone says something that makes them feel uncomfortable, that's not true. No, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm just using it. I'm using uh, an illustration to point out what happens. Along comes Donald Trump. He rejects political correctness. He wakes up every morning 
and he pokes at these people on Twitter. And he's essentially saying to them, even if he's aware of it or not, he's saying, my title as president destroys your whole reality. That's essentially why I think people are so angry. It's because they have this this reality built on feelings. They have this reality built on how they view the world and how dare someone give them an opposing uh, opinion. You know, I've already said it, but let me underscore. Solomon anticipated the failure of Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy as well. He knew that as human beings, we would try and build a unified order and meaning to our existence. It's a task that God has given us. You can go back to the garden. God told uh, Adam to name the animals. Uh, it's, it's part of who we are as creatures created in God's image. But because we are fallen creatures, instead of doing our work of trying to, to make sense of our world under God's authority with His Word, we reject God and try and make sense of the world on our own. And so, um, oh, I, I ran right past verse 13. Uh, this is this is a business of finding, of searching things out that God has given us. Look at verse 13, second half of verse 13. It's an unhappy business or an evil business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's unhappy, it's evil, because we reject Him and try and carry out that task without Him. But it is good to search out God's thoughts after Him. It is good to understand the principles of science and how this world uh, works and investigate the mysteries of the universe under God. If we don't put God into the equation, all our efforts to gain real wisdom are doomed to fail. And that's what he's saying in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Our attempts at acquiring knowledge without God are as futile as trying to straighten out something that is irreparably crooked. If you were to take an old um, antenna off a car and bend it, can you put it back straight again perfectly as it was? No. In fact, if you were to take something as pliable as a McDonald's straw and bend it all the way over, you can straighten it, but it's still going to have those creases. It'll be impossible for you to remove those creases. It'll never be fully straight again. Because of the fall of mankind and the pervasive presence of sin, life is irreparably bent out of shape. Or in the second uh, phrase in verse 15 when he says, what is lacking cannot be counted, what he means is that you cannot count what is not there. Or to put it in our terminology, in our modern terminology, what Solomon is essentially saying is, Life doesn't add up without God. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, says that life is like an account that refuses to balance. 
Is April here? No, she's not here this morning. Jack's not here. Chris Jackie is uh, good with numbers, and so he'll understand this. Um, Philip Ryken says, uh, Life is like an account that refuses to balance. We can tell something's missing, but we can't figure out what it is. And even when we make an adjustment to get everything to balance, deep down we know that we are fudging the numbers. Trying to to put order to your life without God, whatever order you can put to it, is still out of balance. You're, you're fudging the numbers somewhere. And ultimately, it won't hold when life is um, becomes uh, very difficult. It'll, your, your, your house of knowledge and wisdom will fall down and won't serve you. Moving on to verses 16 and 17, I'm not going to say much about this. I've already addressed this earlier. We have a, uh, a chance next week to dig down deep into what he's talking about in verses 16 and 17 as we move into chapter 2, uh, Lord willing. But I will read the passage. He says, And I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive this also is but a striving after the wind. Solomon's not saying he examined what it's, be, what it's like to be mentally ill when he talks about madness and folly. Rather, he is speaking of living a life of unrestrained sin. As we'll see next week, or if you were to read First Kings chapter 11, uh, later this afternoon, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you'll see what a, his life of unrestrained sin looked like. Solomon did his research in living in madness and folly. But he didn't call it madness and folly at the time, but he realized afterward that's exactly what it was. And just like we have turned our back to chase our own, our own sin... Uh, when God calls us back, we realize how stupid, how um, how uh, ignorant, how uh, disgraceful to God we were acting. And so, he says, he examined um, madness and folly. Moving on to verse 18. Verse 18 says, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Seeking knowledge without God does not promote happiness and contentment. Yeah, that's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? <laughs> uh, sin brings sadness. Holiness brings happiness. But the more secularized our society becomes, the more unhappy we are as a society. The further God moves from our national conscience, the more elusive we find those things that matter most for true peace in our soul. There's, there's now more discontent, more anxiety in our society because we're becoming more secular. Life for many people in our nation at the, the apex of of uh, 
prosperity in the, the most prosperous nation in the world. For many people in our nation, life has lost its zest. It's lost its joy. It's because we're becoming uh, more and more secularized. Less and less of a foundation with God. There's also less concern for our neighbor and more hatred for our enemies when we move further away from God. I sincerely believe that's why our nation is so polarized. So where's the hope for our future as a nation? Where's the hope for our future as a culture? Well, it is in God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. When we know God, He brings into our life His steadfast love. He brings into our life His justice. When we know God, He brings into our life His righteousness. When we know God, things begin, things that can't be measured, according to verse 15, begin to make sense. He tells us this again in in the New Testament. He tells us not to boast in our own wisdom as if we were the source of all knowledge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment uh, I, and, their discern, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So then, where do we find true wisdom? Well, if we continue reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, the Apostle Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Christ, uh, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, help me out, Jimbo, and the, that's right, and the wisdom of God. I knew he would knew it, know it. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So when you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, life will add up. You will be able to see just how broken the world is, because you will see for the first time just how broken your own soul is because of sin. Just reminded of John Calvin. He says, if we want to know God, we've got to know ourselves. If we want to know ourselves, we've got to know God. That's how he starts the Institutes. And so, um, you will also experience the regenerating and restoring power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You'll also see with new eyes. You'll see with the eyes of faith and the eyes of trust. You'll also see other people with a new heart 
heart of self-giving love. You will experience the renewing power of Christ as He will have restored you to the image of God. The world is without hope and without wisdom. But in Christ, our whole existence is defined by hope and wisdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before You in the name of Jesus because He is our life. He is the power of God. He is the only true source of wisdom and makes everything else add up correctly. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to keep our faith um, uh, fixed in Him. Lord, uh, fill us with Christ. Even this day, we pray in His name. Amen. Please take your hymn books, turn to number...